Well, hello and welcome to another episode of the New Ground Life and Leadership Podcast, here to help you thrive as a follower of Jesus wherever you are and in whatever you're going through. It's great to be together again for another exciting and inspiring conversation. And a big thank you to everyone who's emailed in recently to say hi and to let me know that you're enjoying the episodes. It's great to know that there's some people out there. And uh, we recently passed the 2000 download mark, which is fantastic to know that we're gaining new listeners and more people are appreciating the conversations. If you haven't done so already, do please subscribe to the channel and leave us a review in iTunes as well, which will help get the word out to more people and invite others to the party. You can get hold of me for whatever reason by emailing podcast at newgroundchurches.org. Well, I'm excited today to bring you a conversation I had with David Bennett. David Bennett is the author of the book, A War of Loves, in which he describes his journey to faith from an unlikely background. David was an atheist gay activist who found himself confronted by the love of God in Christ in such a way that he surrendered his life to Christ. He's currently a doctoral student at Oxford University. He's a writer, a speaker, and actually was due to speak last year at the New Ground Leadership Conference, which sadly was cancelled because, hey, well, everything was cancelled. <laughs> well, nevertheless, I thought it'd be fun for us to sit together and hear his story. And in our conversation, we cover a lot of ground. And as you'll see, this is quite a long episode. So, you know, originally I was thinking that we could split this over two, but then I figured you guys can handle it. <laughs> if you listen to this whilst you're exercising, you can go for a doubly long run on me. Or if you're commuting, consider this your gift for that traffic jam. Traffic jams, do you remember that pre-COVID experience? With that said, let's get straight into the conversation I have with David Bennett. Enjoy. So, uh, David, why don't we kick things off by just, I'd love to just to hear some of your reflections on the past six months, something you might have learned either about yourself or, or ministry. There's a lot I've learned. I suppose there's obviously the kind of cliched, but cliched for a reason, like it's really good to slow down. Mm. Um, I think there's been a lot of blessing in being able to slow down in the lockdown. I think, you know, I was doing, I'm doing like, you know, high academic work that takes a lot of you and to be very concentrated and like really be in the books. And, you know, whether I was really able to do that with the effects of the book, mm. you know, and everything that came my way after that, mm. it was quite hard to kind of fight for that space. But, and I think, you know, obviously I wanted to do a lot of the ministry that came out of the book and that was precious for me and obviously like telling my story. And so I didn't want to cur curtail mm unnecessarily things that I felt were opportunities to tell that story and to bless the church and to bring people to Jesus. So I think, but what mm. I did learn was to slow down power and it's just like, Oh yeah, I do, you know? And I think there's an element like God lets you sometimes just go for it. And you, you know, Paul says like, I'm poured out like a drink offering for you. You know, I'm like, ex you know, extinguished mm. in your energy and, you know, and there's times we have to pour ourselves out, but there's like seasons of that. Actually, that has to stop at some point and you need to slow down. So that's been profound for me. Um, the other thing I think that's been really fantastic is I now live a very local life. I go to the organic shop and get my milk. You know, I, you know, see three or four mm. friends every second mm. day. <laughs> Rhoda, you know, um, I'm not seeing this huge like network of people. And I think that's actually been a lesson for me 
of something I want to retain a bit of. I mean, I don't think it'd be exactly the same after, but I want to retain more of the local and limit the global, if you like. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, I mean, you mentioned your your book coming out, and it's a fantastic book. If people haven't read it, you need to read it, and hopefully, hopefully after this conversation, people will go out and buy it because it's it's remarkable and made a huge impact on me. What was the response like from your book? Um, yeah, I think you know what I've been amazed by, honestly, Jazz, is like the response to my book has been so positive, and I'm sure there's some responses that are negative that I don't know about, but generally. I've been almost shocked and awed at how lovely people have been that don't agree with me that have actually read it. Now there's been people who haven't read it have just prejudicially said, Oh, this is a bad book. Mm. Goodbye. Like it's against what I think. But for the people that like Mm. actually have the like integrity and humility of it to read it, they've all had a quite positive experience with it. And I think that for me is pretty incredible thing to be able to see, not just try to make happen, but actually to see it happen through the book. Yeah. So that's been great. I actually think the greatest toll for me with the book has been my closer personal life and some of the spiritual attack that I've had through that and some of the ways mm. Christians have disappointed me pretty profoundly. Mm. Um, just, yeah, not people I thought would be like for me or protect me or didn't. And so I like did, went through some forms of betrayal um, that were, yeah, really painful, but I knew things like that would happen and I just had to have grace and forgive that. And a lot of that's been restored but certainly I was shocked at, at, yeah, just some of the limitedness of Christians that hold to a traditional conservative view and that I was not expecting that to be the place that was the hardest. I was mm. expecting people to be like, this is awesome, praise God. But people like nitpicked at my book and felt uncomfortable by the parts mm. that were challenging and just, I just found that really hard and really disappointing on a like, I was like, this mm. is my, this is me. <laughs> like, mm. and I think that's, what's very hard about the book. Like there's a beautiful effect for the gospel, beautiful, like mm. amazing work of Holy spirit just happening everywhere with it, getting messages every mm. day that I can barely touch or fully read. It's just like coming in all the time and so much mm. fruit. And yet such a ridiculous response from so many like traditional conservative, whatever Christians Mm. absolutely like what the, you know? (laughs) So, and just like, that's been really hard. And I think it's because my book has a double edged sword to it that like does actually challenge people that are a bit stuck in. They might, I think the word homophobia is a little bit strong, (laughs) but certainly Mm. at least a predisposition to that. Um, you know, where people are almost a little bit, when deep push comes to shove, they're actually a little bit homophobic. <laughs> uh, that is actually there. Mm. Well, I think one of the things that certainly I encountered and felt your, found your books to be so impactful on was how it exposed unconscious biases that I didn't 
think I had. Uh, they're unconscious. So I was, um, of course, I didn't know I had them. But you're reading this book and just I'm, I'm wondering, why am I surprised at this and surprised at that? And why is this? And like, oh, I because I'd never never really heard a story like your story and uh, found that so helpful on that point of view. Why don't we dive into your story? Um, for those who haven't read the book, I guess, um, I'd love for those who've never met you, never read your book, never heard of you before. Why don't you just give us a, a bit of an overview sketch of uh, what God's done in your life up until this point? Yeah, it's been it's been a roller coaster ride. It's been amazing. I think I'm still processing like what happened to me, you know, <laughs> Um, it's kind of like my whole life now is just like what actually happened you know because um, wow. like when God intervenes in our lives I think we know that he has because it has that effect so yeah you know my story starts in Sydney Australia an agnostic atheist home going to a Christian school experiencing kind of a very thin gruel of like Christian morality with no gospel um, the kind of dry, dead, good news Bible sketches of Jesus that just weren't alive. There's no Holy Spirit. It was like hyper-Calvinist, mm. you know, just dead as a dodo. But still the body of Christ was there. There were still great people who loved Jesus and knew him. But, like, I was never able somehow to, like, access um, him. And, you know... We just give that to the author. He knows the story he's writing. Um, and then, <laughs> then like, um, yeah, I came out as gay when I was 14 at school. I was very much always being that kind of person of, like, I'm just going to say it. I'm going to do the courage thing, you know. Mm. And I don't think I've really changed my policy, you know. <laughs> mm. Tell us about that experience of coming out as gay, which obviously we were talking about this from a Christian lens, but I think that experience of looking into yourself and seeing desires that are different perhaps from many of your friends and coming out is a, is a courageous and momentous moment in a gay person's life. Help us understand what goes through someone's heart and mind during those months leading up to that. Yeah. I think it's very difficult. Like, especially when you're, you know, you hit puberty and like you're confronted with this reality and you're like a young person, you don't, have all of the coping mechanisms or the knowing of how to do things, you know, it's like, it's just very difficult thing. I think, um, especially at that time where the conversation was either very, very liberal or very, very conservative. There wasn't much in the middle, um, that you could find of that. So I kind of just had to do it myself and just, yeah, like I think process, be be assured enough that like my parents weren't going to reject me but it was all really spurred on by this one moment where I kind of had a suicidal thought and was like I think it'd just be easier if I jump off this little cliff you know and I was like oh my gosh like did Mm. I just think that and that was the end point for me I was like I'm not I can't I have to come out and I actually had a girlfriend Mm. at that time and she I told her that I wasn't attracted to her you know to women um to men Mm. and um, told her I'd had this experience and she said to me like you just have to come out you can't stay in this place and mm. I think that's what people don't understand about coming out or about gay identity it being gay is about integrating this into your life so that you don't live in that place of fear anymore you don't live in that place where you have those thoughts because you've accepted yourself and I think Christians don't understand that very well often they just say well 
you know, that's not your identity, just live like everyone else. But that's not an option. Like, you have to deal with this, you know, and it's real and it's live and it's a huge thing. So, yeah, that was the Mm. process for me. And then, you know, finding really deep acceptance from my parents, but also my parents going through the process of, like, did we do anything? It was more my mom. Like, was there anything that meant Mm. David was gay? Did I do anything wrong? And not in a way that was, like, mean or it was just her she was trying to understand like why what what it is why and I think what I love about the gospel is basically given me an explanation for why I'm gay it's not it's one because I've been created with desire and desire is a gift first before it's a curse and then secondarily Hmm. you know I've I'm also under the law of sin and death I was born under in sin under sin's domain um, and so the way my desires are configured are now no longer able to be righteous. And that, that particular kind of unrighteousness that I have points towards the, op- the the same sex, sorry, rather than opposite. And that I need Jesus to help me unravel that. You know, those the mm. gift of desire and the fallenness of desire. And Do you think that's a more helpful way for, for parents to think through um, and and understand and reconcile when their child does come out to them as gay is have I you know your mum's response have I done anything wrong your response to that is no we all have desires and all of our desires are slightly out of kilter with what God designed us to be is how would you help parents process that I think parents should be like weirdly completely unsurprised that their child might be gay I think Like, if we have a decent theology of creation for redemption and we know the gospel, it's like, yeah, of course they are. Like, yeah, well, they have gender dysphoria. Yeah, of course they do. Because we know as Christians that the creation is groaning, our bodies are groaning, that part of that groaning is that we don't sense our bodies to fully be in alignment with new creation reality. Like, that should be like, duh. Like, the church should be like, of course there are gay people. Awesome. Like, now there's glory to be revealed. Like, it shouldn't be oh no like they don't fit in this like dour old natural law ethic that like killed millions of people like (laughs) (laughs) Like, that's not the gospel like um that is like a pale excuse for christian ethics pale excuse for the gospel um it's controlling legalistic moralistic denies human flourishing like that is not now, there's obviously truths in that there is a natural or in some level, like male and female and creation. I'm not denying that, but that's not where the buck stops. The gospel is much bigger than that. And if we don't understand the whole structure mm. of it, then we are going to create a deficient um, understanding of human sexuality that then will cause harm. So, And I do think the progressive account, not just the conservative natural law account, but the you know, progressive account also causes harm because it reduces us to our sexuality. It makes it ultimate in a very unhealthy way, I think, for us. So I'm not saying that it's all to blame on that side of things. There's truth there, but it's, yeah, that's what I'd say, you know, sorry, it's a bit theological, but for the parents, but I think, yeah, just that general sense of like, yeah, like this is different, but it's not necessarily... Like, yes, there are implications. I think that was what was hard for my mom is like there were implications for me in life that my mom didn't want me to have to go through Mm. that she could feel the weight of. And that was hard for her. And I can understand that for parents. Like, but also having the other side where there's like, well, this is a gift and there's actually something special God wants to reveal in this space. 
Mm. And I don't have to be afraid of it. And I can trust God with my child. You know, I think that's really important. Mm, yeah, that's really helpful. And I think that's a he- healthy way of processing it. So you're 14, you've come out as gay, your pro- parents are processing this. Uh, obviously, in your book, you talk about then identifying as a gay activist. So tell us how you go from there to there. Yeah, so the gay activist thing for me was all about self-rejection. So I think what I knew as a young person just in processing myself was I need to not reject myself. That's not a good thing. No, no, no. That's you know, not going to bring me to a good place. So I was like, well, I have to come out as we talked about. And so I have to reject self-rejection in, in, in every sense. Um, and I think what was interesting is like that gay activist mentality, I experienced homophobia in a park when I was kissing my boyfriend and a man like threw a stone against my back. And then I also experienced a man spitting on us when we were holding hands, you know, in, in a Sydney. And like, that was really, difficult for me to experience and to say well I want to remove that whatever that what is causing that and that's clearly Christianity you know so but what I didn't I think understand is that I was still controlled by self-rejection the angsty gay activist anti-Christian destroy the church get rid of religion you know Richard Dawkins is king whatever mentality was very like you know based on that sense that I have to reject self-rejection but the irony of that is that I'm still in self-rejection because I'm still controlled by its reality. So I think it was only until God broke into my life, you know, when I was about 19, there was a real sense of him breaking in. Um, I started to ask questions about politics, about what I'd been taught at uni. It wasn't fitting for me. And um, Mm. I remember being in a club in Oxford street, like a kind of alternative arts thing and I just had this question, what is love? And I, I suddenly became exhausted with like the secular mm. romantic ideal of love and how that drove my whole personality and like what I was doing in politics. It started to just feel empty and it wasn't working. And so I like asked all these people in a journal to write down their response to that question um, kind of semi-pretentiously <laughs> and got like just this really terrible responses and I was like, mm. you know, these are people I respect. They're intellectuals. They're like politicians. Like, and that's it. Like, I'm not, mm. I don't want to be part of this. I'm over it. You know, and I just remember, you know, it's like C.S. Lewis says, if you have a desire in your heart that nothing in this world can satisfy, then you know you were created for another world. And I think it just mm. even goes deeper than what Lewis says, though, because it's almost like, you know, nothing can satisfy you. And you're constantly reminded by that, like in and yet you kind of just keep trying to find an object that will fit it. Um, and that's mm. a really horrible place to be, I think, that a lot mm. of people in our culture on Instagram particularly are in. <laughs> you know, I'm bombarded by it every day. Mm. I'm just like, this is so horrific. It looks so good, but it's so not good. <laughs> like, mm. you know, the body obsession and the presentation of image – I'm just so I'm exhausted by that stuff. I'm mm, sorry, I do not want to mm. be part of that. So I knew that at that age, and that was a huge grace. And I think that was the Holy Spirit touching me. And then um, I had this debate with my uncle at the Christmas lunch table, and he was a Pentecostal Christian, and so I hated him. And I had this very strong view of what Pentecostal Christians were like—that they were culty, that they were manipulative, that they tried to change gay people um, with his weird therapies, that they had, you know, money issues and they're just dodgy dodgy people 
And so, um, you know, we had a conversation about God and I said, there's no absolute truth. And, you know, you can't communicate truth as language. I'm studying at uni and this is what's real. And what about all the other religions, etc." And he said, well, you say there's no absolute truth. That's an absolute truth. And you just communicated that with language. So you just doubly contradicted yourself. And so I think that's the really rich, like interesting response. I was not expecting anything intellectual from my uncle because he's this weirdo, you know, <laughs> just <laughs> totally written him off. And yet that actually spoke to me quite deeply. And then I, he got into the car after that debate and that disagreement. And he said to my aunt, like, I see the Holy Spirit over David and he's going to be saved in three months time. And then three months later, I was in a pub in central Sydney and there was a young filmmaker alumna from my university that I knew from a few events at uni and she got her film into the largest short film competition in the world. So I wanted to get that interview with her for the university magazine. And so I had the kind of boldness one night, three months later, after having this debate from my uncle, just knew, first of all, felt drawn to this one particular pub that wasn't particularly nice. And I wasn't particularly close to the person who was hosting the event for their birthday. It was very weird that I went there in retrospect, but I just felt drawn to go. When she was there... And I knew, like, I just had the boldness to go up to her and just start asking her questions about how on earth do you get this film into the largest short film competition in the world. And she explained to me, actually, and I don't put all this detail in the book, but she explained to me that if she hadn't listened to God, so it was God, obviously, and I was put off by that. But she said, you know, if I hadn't listened to God and I put it into the Sundance, then I wouldn't have gotten into Tropfest, you know, because Tropfest, like, that would have mean like it was disqualified from any other competitions. So because I listened to God and didn't put it into these other competitions, you know, it won like it won a place as finalist. And I was just like, what the? Who hears God like that? Like, what are you talking about? Like, I just I never encountered that with a Christian. You know, it's very much mm. to me this weird, dry Bible, hyper Calvinist, like, and no life, no power, no color. Mm. The Christianity. So was that your that was your experience on the one hand the hyper Calvinist on the other hand your Pentecostal uncle who you had um, as you said negative views about but equally I'm just inter- intrigued like before all of this your experience of homophobia or having someone throw a rock at you and you blaming that on Christianity so you know what where's where's the the dislike of Christianity come from as a as a young gay man in Australia where did you read the Bible or is it just that's the reputation of the church so I. I think that the real issue for me is that um, what Christianity has said is that sexuality is an ethical issue. I don't think it is, primarily. I think it has elements that are ethical. But Christianity, like sexuality is primarily a theodicy issue. It's about human suffering. And what I would say to Christianity is, why would God allow me to have this desire put me in a cruel reality where I can't actually live it out properly and then punish me for it. That, that makes no sense. Like at all. Like why would I respect a God like that? You know? So it wasn't until, and that's what's creating the homophobia and that's what's creating this horrible reality for me where, you know, I'm stuck in this quagmire. I'm not signing up for that. Goodbye. And I'm like not going anywhere near a church. I think that's what most secular people that are gay, that's what they think. We haven't done anything to to counter that. It's so sad. Like, our articulation of the gospel sucks. I'm just (laughs) trying, like, in terms of meeting that 
cry of why, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We don't preach to gay people. Well, Jesus died to enter that suffering with you as a, you know, to, he gets it, you know, mm. that actually it's not that simple. And there's this gospel of grace and the law and like everything Paul says, like we don't exegete that to our culture. We don't say here it is the answer. And I had to find that out in a conversion experience because no one in the church was decent enough to explain the gospel to me every time I like probably were a little bit afraid to because of my reactions, which is fair enough. But like, you know, no one ever just told me these like basic things about creation for redemption, about gospel, about how God meets us in our difficult and sufferings and things we can't explain. And why is it this way? It was always, I can explain it to you. I can give you this abstract theory. This is what you are. I'll tell you it's an ethical issue. And that just so frustrating. Like it just doesn't meet someone in where they're really at in like, imagine like putting yourself in the shoe of so, shoes of someone who's actually gay you know? mm. and not just saying, trying to like explain it away as like, well, it was their father or there was this weird, like heterosexual, hetero, uh, straight explaining, you know, explanations for why people are gay. <laughs> um, yeah. Sorry. I'm, just, I'm giving you some spice cause we've got to put it on the rice, but yeah, it's like, <laughs> you know, it's like, I just think that, that is what what was going on for me as a young person. Yeah, sorry. Say, help me, help me with this again, because you said that quickly, and there were some big concepts in there. Sorry. So yeah. you're no, no. You're saying that the the standard what you I like this expression the standard straight explaining explanation for for what Christianity has to say to gay people is the ethical one that it's a sin you need to stop it. For, but you're saying that's not the most effective way to even think about the subject. Um, what's a better way that you just said there? So we have this fancy word in you know theology called theodicy, but it's basically when we give an account for why God allows suffering, you know, as Christians, and then you know atheists will say, "Well, doesn't work for me that explanation." So that's called theodicy. So it's a response to the problem of suffering. So I think being gay is partially in a big way the problem of having a different embodiment that doesn't fit with the norms of culture and society in the church and even with god and his law um and actually having jesus come in to that as the response to the problem of human suffering not as some like easy ethical explanation that says well this is why, but here's a person who meets you in it. Mm. Here's a person who responds to that and shifts and changes your heart and your understanding. So now you can see it in a different way. That mm-hmm. is what needs to happen. Not mm-hmm. just people give an ethic, they go home and live and have their cup of tea every morning and never work it out with God. Like it has to be embodied. It has to be incarnate. It has to be entering into that suffering with people yeah so are you acknowledging there then that the experience of the average non-christian gay person is an experience of suffering yeah okay yeah i think i think gay secular culture is constantly trying to say we flourish better than you we're wonderful we're happy we're gay here's the rainbow everything's wonderful when actually deep down every gay person is like why am i gay and why do i have to go through this you know and like why do i why isn't it just all gonna eat and then later like obviously gay people develop their own response to that and will reject that and say well it's a gift and it's beautiful and whatever at the end of the day they've gone through that process of feeling not 
you know, congruent with how everything's happening. And that's why you get this woke culture and this angst and this anger and this like shut down the churches and the, you know, so we as the church have to actually understand that better than they, than, than they do. We, but I think we do because we have a Messiah that died on a cross, but we haven't actually gone into that story and found the resources to meet the gay community. I suppose Mm. that's my passion is like, I'm not interested in these like weird self-justification things as Christians. I'm just like done with it. Like I don't want to justify ourselves as Christians. I want to go to those people and give them the gospel and like mm. give them the the company in that suffering and then not expect mm. them to totally get it straight away. It's so beautiful. But for that to be a process. And that's what Jesus did with the disciples, what we're called to do. Mm. And I think every disciple had their own version of that failure, that suffering um, that he met them in. And one version of that is being gay, I think, you mm. know? Yeah. That's so good. That's so good. I just, I find that presentation of things so helpful, but I think you're also cautioning people that we mustn't approach a gay non-Christian through the your your suffering i need to help you in your suffering because for them it's a battle of learning to accept themselves and love themselves uh, uh, even while underneath the surface you might say they are living with this um experience that isn't as you said congruent with everybody else they know that there's a difference about them and we don't need to always point that difference out but instead to see how jesus enters into an experience and and relates the gospel to them is that what you're saying yeah totally and I don't think there's a solution to the law, you know. I mean, the law is good and spiritual, but my gosh, when you're gay, it's a horrendous curse. Hmm. Like, and no one in the heterosexual Christian community recognizes that. They say, well, the the law is good and spiritual. I'm like, yes, it is, but it's also death. Hmm. Like, to me, and like, I can't change that. And don't expect me to. And I think, like, that's the thing that I find just so hard sometimes with heterosexual Christians. Like, do you not see how hard that is? Like, and don't just become a progressive. That's not going to, like, solve the issue. You're trying to, like, prematurely resolve this. Stop it. Like, Mm. you know, like, like, walk with us. Like, go deeper. Join us in your own struggles, in your own sufferings. Mm. You know, and that's why I find, like, some of my deepest heterosexual friends are, like, people who are infertile or sterile or can't have kids or there's some big other thing in their life they've suffered and it's like we can it's like we get it it's like it's it's not even spoken it's just like boom you know and I don't even have to explain myself half the time with them they're like I get it Mm. so it's actually about the poor in spirit who are inheriting the kingdom and I think this is something I've been trying to say to the evangelical community for quite a while but they think I'm playing identity politics I'm not playing identity politics the kingdom of God is for gay people because they are poor in spirit because they have to go through this struggle not because they merit something higher or their justification is greater it's like no we're not talking on that level like that's one way of the gospel being understood we're all equal we're all justified by faith there is jew nor greek slave nor free you know gay nor straight like yes but there's still the axis of poverty of spirit. There's still the axis of like people go through difficulty and God gives them the kingdom. And I think that's the thing I like want people to understand is like, there is a gift in this, mm. not just a curse or suffering as well, that in that process of working it out, 
the depth of faith and the glory of God that manifests is so amazing and it's such a gift to the church. Um, you know, and so that, I think that's what I'm trying to do with the war of loves is shift, shift some of the ways we understand sexuality with a deeper regard to the gospel. Mm. Yeah. Wow. And I can see totally how as Christians, we, we can hide behind the Lord's commands uh, because that keeps us feeling safe. If we fit within the box and we, you know, can keep the Lord's commands and they make sense to us, we can use it as a, either as a stick to beat someone or as a stick to keep people away from us. Whereas actually Jesus's approach is incarnational. He enters into our experiences and our suffering. And certainly for me, a massive take home from reading your book was the compassion, literally the the ability to suffer alongside someone living your experience and see the world through your eyes was a was a, a beautiful gift which isn't a gift that you often get because you're right the way I've often been trained to think about sexuality is through the the lens of the law and how to help people see that you know this is wrong and God's law is good and that's the lens that we've gone through or like you said the progressive narrative of you know it's okay things have moved on the Holy Spirit saying something new to the church um, we need to embrace them and change the traditional understanding of things. Um, currently in the story, uh, outside this club, talking to this film uh, producer. Um, so I was in this pub in central Sydney, you know, not far from the gay quarter, but just around the corner from uh, the gay quarter, just around the corner um, in Surrey Hills for people that know Sydney. Um and uh, yeah, and I just was in this pub with a young filmmaker who'd got her film into the largest shop film competition, and she told me about how that had happened. Um, and in some sense, there is a kind of enigmatic quality about this person that, like, I just hadn't seen in many Christians in my life. And so I was like drawn to her and drawn to some sense of like authenticity. And her films were about people who were disabled or people who are misunderstood. And something also I think deeply about her her heart was she really cared for people with different embodiments or you know, stood up for people that were mentally handicapped. And I think that really spoke to me. Well, I don't think it was experienced the same as being gay in any sense. Ultimately, there was some overlap in terms of caring for people that weren't understood or were on the margins or not valued by our society in the right ways, I suppose, mm. um, and her, mm. her wanting to change that as a Christian. And mm. I think that's a deeply Jesus-like thing that I encountered in her. So that attracted to me to her and made me trust her, but I was still had this voice in my head going, she's a crazy fundamentalist, get the hell away from her, like... You know, so she offered me prayer um, and said, you know, had this kind of charismatic moment where the Holy Spirit was like on her and she was like, well, like I need to pray for you. And it's always like manifesting in the spirit. I was like, what's going And I've just never seen anything like this, you know, and I never seen like a spirituality, a Christian spirituality was just always so informational and so like, there's a Bible, read it. There's this gospel. Yeah, great. You're good now. Like, become a Christian. Like, ugh. Yeah. So I was like, you know, I understand what people were trying to do in those places, but it didn't. Yeah, there was something about her and just her relationship with God and the power of God, the Holy Spirit, and Jesus in her life. And basically, um, yeah, she said, like, I, I just got to pray for you. And I said, okay. And 
you know, I'm a good agnostic, you can go ahead, but I don't think anything's going to happen, mm. so good luck, you know. <laughs> and she kind of prays for me, like, in a full-on, you know, Holy Spirit, very free way. And, um, yeah, I just start to experience this tingling sensation on the top of my head and, like, this, like, rush of fire just, like, going through my whole body and this, like, oil being, like, poured over my head. So it wasn't, like, literally physical oil. Some people have asked me that. It's like, no, no, no. But it was, like like on like in and on my body this like presence like oozing into me it was Mm. very you know and you think of like psalm um 23 you anoint my head with oil and i think you know i anoint my servant david with my sacred oil so it's almost like tailored to me as david you know like that had the way that the holy spirit touched me and first kind of came into my life I feel very marked by that actually. And like my passion is worship and praise. And there's, I have this very strong yeah, connection to the figure of King David. Um, mm. Yeah. So that, that happened. And then I heard this voice say, do you want me three times? And um, this, as, as, as I, that I said yes to that voice, then I sensed this kind of veil over my heart, like a thick darkness and this pinprick of light, just like go all the way, like to the deepest point of my being and then this breath like entering my like place that wasn't even in my like I don't know how to describe it It was like deeper than my body is deep it was like you know we say deep cries out to deep you know that there's this place within us that's designed for God's indwelling and he opened that and he made it alive and I was suddenly like filled Mm -hmm. and indwelt by God and I could feel the difference and it was like whoa and then I had this voice say to me you know do you want uh, no will you accept my son Jesus as your Lord and Savior? And that was a real, I, that felt like this spiritual war over me, like was happening. Like I really felt this like almost, and then suddenly my mind was just, was like, well, why would I choose that side of things? Like that's darkness, but that side's light. Like just that suddenly all made sense to me. And so I was like, yes, to, mm-hmm. to God, to that offer. But my mind was saying, you're atheist gay activist like how could you say yes <laughs> you know so it's incredibly interesting like extremity of experiences going on in me all at one time and very intense like mystical holy spirit power love and so when I said yes to that then the love of God was just poured out on my life and I just mm. wept and wept and it was a different kind of crying because it wasn't emotionalism it was like inner healing and you know, even you anoint my head with oil in the psalm 23 is about actually the the flies and horrible things that get into sheep's minds and their faces and that clearing that off and protecting them from that so it always felt like a deliverance from deception you know and a deep you know truth like flooding into my life so then I went home my mom was waiting up and she'd heard about this prophecy and become a Christian you know it's that word from my uncle that I talked about and like I'd been really angry with her and there was definitely a conflict between us when she'd become a Christian because she wasn't you know right up until the age of about 16 17 um and I, I felt like she'd chosen God over me because God couldn't exist if I was gay that was the you know basic thing and so I walk into the house and I'm like I'm gonna have to eat my words you know and um she's just waiting there kind of like it's been three months it's you know March 2009 it was December 2008 when I had the debate with my uncle Christmas lunch so you know 
it was just amazing. And so Hmm. I told her basically I'd become a Christian and she was just absolutely amazed. And so that's how it all happened. That night I went um, to sleep and I um, spoke in tongues in my sleep, like just crazy, like (laughs) relentless, like Holy Spirit experiences that actually had nothing to do with a church collective context, which Mm. I think was actually good for me because it convinced me of the reality of the spirit outside of just church and what church does. And like, I know the Holy Spirit in my own way before I even entered the church. So that was really amazing. And I think now I look back at the Holy Spirit's work in my life and even speaking in tongues in my sleep and I know that that's actually a sign that I'm included in God's covenant. And I think as a gay person, that's like incredibly important at a mm. certain stage that you're included, not because you did anything or you understood your sexuality correctly or you got it all right, which is an incredibly difficult thing to do, but just because God has done that in Christ and that mm. Jesus took on a humanity that is your humanity, you know, too, not just everyone else's humanity, but like what you've gone through. Yeah. Yeah, and you you mentioned that the in in the book as well the part of the draw and appeal of the LGBT community is the radical inclusion that you feel when you're part of that that often sadly is lacking in the church community. Um, is, is, was that a big part of your the next steps for you? The challenges then between this community that you felt radically included by, and then this God that you now felt radically included by, and then having to almost try to marry the two. Uh, how do I, can I still remain co- included by the LGBT family that I'm part of and also included by God? What happened next? I mean, it's a remarkable story. And I think when I read the book, your, the, your friend, the filmmaker, I just thought to myself, that's a good day for a Christian <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to, to, be led, to be led by the Holy Spirit, to pray for someone and to see that kind of response. It's like, oh, Lord, I love that. <laughs> so I think what I discovered was that all these communities the gay community was failing me because as soon as I mentioned any hint of wanting to be Christian, then I got rejected. And they were basically exactly the same as the Christians, if not worse sometimes, you know? And so I was like, there isn't a real inclusion in any of this because there isn't an, because I actually think the only time you really have true inclusion is when, you know, you have God involved. And even then it doesn't always work as we know in the church. So yeah, it, it was ideologically ripped off inclusion that I experienced in the gay community. And as soon as I changed or had a different value to them, I wasn't included anymore. I wasn't given privileged space. I wasn't given power. I was like ignored and seen as a threat. And so that's deeply hurtful. And that was a whole other grief I went through at the same time as going through the grief of the church, just having no idea what it's doing and just having to live in that is incredibly exhausting. And you know, there are days where I'm a little bit more egotistical. And I'm like, Lord, I really deserve a big palace in heaven. Like, <laughs> like that was freaking hard. And God's like, sit down, David. Like, you know, like, you know, having a joke with him. Like sometimes I think about these experiences. I'm like, but everyone goes through things. Like it's not just gay people. I like, I don't really think that I'm just joking, but you know, like it's, it, it, these are hard things. And like, you know, yeah, so mm. that that was um, experiencing rejection from the gay community, especially when I became celibate. But even before that, just even the fact that I was like, I don't want to have sex before marriage or, you know, even those things, people in the gay community are like, what? You know, and I was rejected or seen as weird. Um, 
And then in the Christian community, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be celibate. And they're like, oh, that's weird. Mm. Ugh. You know, like, like, yeah, way to reject your own Messiah. Great. Um, like, you know, like, <laughs> um, how Christian are you? Um, yeah. So it's like, I just, I, yeah, I was just, it's just, and I still experience that. I still, I get gay splain, straight splain, splained from every angle. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> well at least the lord actually understands you there's a lot of good but i suppose for your listeners i'm trying to give them a real sense yeah. of this not just to like mention it quickly and move on i, I do yeah. think this is a really big deal and I, there is so much other good that i could talk about in the gay community and the church but that has not been good in both of them yeah, and I think it's really important for people to hear not just pastors who have a responsibility of pastoring and preaching, but actually the responsibility on every person within the body of Christ to not just leave it to the leaders or leave it to the others to, to talk about these issues, but actually to enter into someone's experience and suffering and to love them where they're at and to include them. And I, I want to come on to, because you, you picked up then that to the to your gay friends in the gay community, you, you talked about your desire to be celibate until marriage. And I know from the book, you know, becoming a Christian, it's not as though you then became a, a conservative evangelical overnight. <laughs> I mean, you may have had a remarkable experience that turned you into a Calvinist with your belief in irresistible grace. You couldn't turn that down. <laughs> but <laughs> no, well, I, yeah, I actually had a conversation about that, that this weekend. And I was like, yeah, we can talk about that one. But that's interesting. You know, um, it's very hard for me to think that when you really have grace revealed to you and God regenerates your internal spiritual senses to him, that you can say no. Like, I think you can probably, but can't, you can't really. Like, <laughs> it's just like, but I don't even know anymore. I'm just like, that's, yeah, the tension. But I think it is irresistible at the same time as we are somehow creatures and have agency. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> that's perhaps for another conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then your, your journey from from be, becoming a Christian to then embracing, uh, embracing, believing, holding conservative Orthodox Christian positions on sexuality and marriage. Talk us through some of that journey as well. And I think one of the things is I've just had to ideologically strip myself. I've had to say, I am not conservative. I'm not liberal. I might have to use those words for people to understand me quick hand. I'm just going to be a Christian and I'm not going to compromise. And I feel like my life, I still think there are massive areas in my own personal life that I'm still working out obedience in. And like, I'm by no means final product. But there's this process of stripping down those ideologies and saying, I just need them to be over there for now. And I, I don't I actually just want to find what it looks like to look like a Christian. And I actually think in our political time with Trump and Joe Biden, and all this horrifically sick politics going on, Christians need to recenter themselves. You know, this is not just about, you know, the, but I do think these political elections and the whole structure of political imagination as the West seems to be very shaped by how we've dealt with sexuality and we've done it badly. And now we're seeing it in our political world and we're seeing these mm. politically moribund people take the higher places of authority and we're having to live under that as Christians. And it's like, where's the protest, you know, to say, as Christians, no, like, I'm going to be a Jesus follower, and I'm not going to compromise. And I'm going to honor Jesus's cross with everything I have. And that's going to mean I care about the poor, I am want wealth to go to the poor, I 
you know, care about healthcare and education. But I think God has a vision for marriage that is beautiful, sacred, exclusive to male and female. Mm. I'm not like we need to hold that space where we do not allow ideology. And I think what underpins ideology is idolatry. (laughs) I think they're very Mm. connected. And so in fear, we cling to idols, but in love, we cling to God. And so I think that's the thing. We just have to change the culture of the church from a culture of fear about sexuality and other broad issues and mm. um, to a culture of love. And that doesn't mean those leaders in power don't need love and don't need redemption and aren't people too. And, you know, I'm not trying to like make a political statement, uh, but I'm just trying to talk about the cultural conditions that keep us in the spaces we've been in and how we as leaders can actually have the bravery to change that. Mm, that's a beautiful phrase. Uh, in fear, in fear, fear, in fear we cling to idols, and in love we cling to God. Um, that's that's beautiful. Um, but obviously, uh, you didn't arrive there overnight. And I know from the book, you, um, as a Christian, were in a gay relationship with your boyfriend and attending church. And um, and what I loved again was about was the church's willingness to you know recognize you're on a discipleship journey like we all are and to welcome you and your boyfriend to church without making it a bigger deal than it perhaps needed to be but um so how how did you go how did how did you change your position on that great question so i changed my position on that (laughs) i think it was so there's this quote about archbishop cramner um thomas cramner theology and he he had this really amazing reformational theology where he said a a scholar summed it up this way um what the heart desires the will wants and the mind justifies and so i think what i was in at that point is i'd received jesus i was saved i was filled with the holy spirit i was prophesying left right and center like you know i was definitely fully a christian like no doubt about it I also had some demonic stuff I needed to get rid of. Like there's a whole lot of stuff going on. It was like full on, you know, three years. But in that process, um, my heart and mind and will needed to be transformed. And so at the beginning, actually on God's list, the belief about my boyfriend and getting married to him and trying to, you know, wanting to have sex in marriage and not out of it, that was actually not the top thing on God's list to transform it was actually that i didn't fear the lord that i didn't have these other aspects of my christian walk that needed to be in place before i could then receive god's teaching in a way that would be right and actually not bring me into a place of death but into a place of life and only god knew that but god provided the conditions of having my mum and aunt and their acceptance and the church being able to kind of cope with my boyfriend being there on some level you know even though I'm sure there was some backdoor gossip, like, what do we do with this David guy? You know, um, you know, necessary discussion, not necessary gossip, but you know what I mean? Like, and so I think um, my aunt said something very interesting to me. She was like, I just need you to privilege the Holy Spirit above anything else. So what he teaches you, I need you to actually not say the Holy Spirit's taught it to you unless he really has. And we're going to know if the Holy Spirit's taught it to you because the scriptures will confirm it. But that's not enough. You have to actually go through the journey yourself. And so I'm not going to change my view on scripture, but I recognize it's so easy for me to accept the scriptures on this level and for you as a whole. So there was just like this really amazing space. And then 
um, I just sensed it wasn't right with that boyfriend and the Holy Spirit was actually not in it. And so I'd made that kind of agreement with my aunt and I was like, well, I know this isn't right. And I hadn't necessarily changed my view, but I knew it wasn't right for me to be with him. And then um, I ended up in Strasbourg, France, doing my final year of my degree. And I met this celibate missionary and saw her life and how she was this incredible disciple maker and had this fruitfulness that I hadn't seen in a lot of other heterosexual people's lives that were married because she could just dedicate herself to raising people up in the faith and I thought well if she could do that that's actually really attractive I think I'd like to live that way suddenly celibacy was like Mm. a possibility not even just beyond sexuality and then God actually sent me a book in the mail on my birthday about being gay and like called washed and waiting by Wesley Hill and celibacy and like I read that and it was just like I knew I had to give my homosexuality to God and then in that Mm. I received this incredible kind of giftedness towards that even though I don't necessarily think I have the gift of celibacy and I don't believe in that theology I think there was a grace to unlock the possibility of being celibate and then actually that being a default for a Christian if other options aren't righteous you know so that's how I put it. I wouldn't want people to think I have this special gift of celibacy. They're gay. They don't have that gift. They can go do what they like. No, that's not how this works. Um, that is a bad theology of gifting, um, in my opinion. Um, I think I'm just as called to be married as I am celibate. Like, I don't, you know, and if I end up marrying married in God's righteous purposes to a woman, like that could happen too. I could be in a mixed orientation marriage, but I knew that going through that I'm willing to give up my homosexuality. That goes back to what I was saying about Art Cramner is that suddenly my heart's desire shifted where I was like, I want what Jesus wants and I'm willing to give up anything for it. And suddenly Mm -hmm. then I could see the biblical teaching in its true light and I could accept it and actually not find it a burden, but actually a blessing. And what's so funny now Mm -hmm. is like 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and Romans 1 and all these passages, some of them are like, they're basically some of my favorite passages in the Bible because they actually teach me that there were gay people in the early church and that God brought them in and justified them and washed them and gave them a life in God. And actually no one else can boast like everyone else is equal in that wrestle with sin and the fall. And that, that, that actually for me is actually hugely life-giving, but I had to get to the point where I was transformed inwardly and circumcised of heart. And then I could see, I see it and live it. Mm. So, what would you say then to a pastor or a member of a church who, who happens to be there in church, and and a gay person comes in with their boyfriend or girlfriend and sits as part of the congregation? Often, there's an anxiety in Christians or as pastors to think, oh, I need to address the sin, which is strange because we don't approach many other people in our congregations with that mentality. Um, what would you say to people like that? Because the, because if the fear isn't sorry, what's behind the fear of I need to address this is. This is this is a really big deal. And until I've talked about this, it's really hard for us. I don't want them to think I'm hiding something from them or hoodwinking them into church or something. I guess what would be your advice to people in church, pastors and otherwise, uh, on how to welcome and love and receive people who are gay in their church? I think just align yourself with God. Just keep aligning yourself with God. It's like my aunt said to me, just privilege the Holy Spirit do what he tells you and we know it's going to like the same thing for a pastor in that situation just 
don't do it out of you, do it out of him. Like, don't go with your response, whatever it might be. Or we just need to accept them and love them and never talk to them about it. Or we need to like have a conversation. This isn't appropriate. Like whether the congregation going to think like all that stuff, that's not God. That's not how he operates. He is so different and just let him be holy. Let him be different and let him show you his heart and then act in that. And if you do that, it will bring life. You know, but if you act in your fear response or your fluffy, let's make it all easy, nice, and, you know, there's no problem. Like, all of that is just not bringing <laughs> the the right way forward. And I think also just treating them as a very, you know, treating them normally, you know. And, like, I have a friend who's a priest and he's traditional on marriage but he loves giving, um, he actually loves giving counseling to gay married couples or gay couples that are thinking of getting married in the legal sense, you know, and he just loves it. He's just like some of my favorite things because I'm able to enter their life and bring some gospel influence that they've never been given because they've always been rejected. You know, they never felt like they could. And actually, I just think that's so great from like someone who holds the same view that I do. And I was like, that's awesome. Like, I think that's such a good model. Like, I would love, I'd love to come to your wedding. You know, I don't necessarily agree with everything. I have a different view, but like, gosh, I'd love to be there, you know, and like share life with you. And I think this is the thing of the, the, the nature of gay relationships. I think gay relationships still have goods in them. They still have things you can celebrate and value and see and as they journey in Christ. And, mm. you know, I think it's, as I said, we're all at a different stage. And in that process of our heart and our will and our mind being transformed to the point where we can actually see the teaching of God and then respond in obedience. And you just don't know where someone is on that journey, you know. Mm. And you may have some people that know it's wrong but are still bucking against God's teaching. And that that's a, that's a hard thing. But then you just keep, saying, well, you're welcome in this church and, you know, we're going to work this out together and we may end up in different places at different points, but we're both, we're committed to Jesus and that is the basis of our existence in the church. And if you're ever not committed and you don't want to follow him anymore, you're, you're welcome to leave. Like, I'm not trying to keep you here, but if you mm. want him, he comes first. And I think that being the basis of the pastoral relationship, you know, um, and they're going to come and say, well, I read this book and it says this and da, 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 and you need to read it. And it's like, okay, yeah, I'm interested in looking at some of these things, but I'm still pretty you know, convinced that scripture is our authority and like there hasn't, there isn't going to be anything in New Testament or Old Testament scholarship probably that will ever revolutionize this field. It's, it's pretty set in stone, like what the text says, yeah. as much as scholars try to, to change, to, to, different angles yeah because i think that that's what i observe for from the average christian in the church so to speak i notice on the one hand people they're becoming more and more afraid to talk about their faith because of the fear of being you know labeled bigoted or homophobic but on the other hand we're becoming destabilized in our foundations in our attitude towards marriage because some churches and christians are changing their theology on it and so some christians are kind of watching from the sidelines going am I soon going to be allowed to acknowledge gay marriage? Or am I, you know, because that would get me off the hook of being accused of being homophobic. Phew, thank goodness. Um, but I think underneath a lot of Christians, there's a there's a fear and a concern. How can I genuinely say that the, the gospel is good news for my gay friends when 
their charge against me is that it's really not and I'm going to be accused of denying them a fundamental human right. Um, what would your encouragement be and response be to some Christians in positions like that? Well, I think there are two things. If what the kind of scenario I talked about with human suffering is true, then I can understand that response. But that's a misunderstanding of the gospel because if the gospel says what it does, and that's why we've talked about previously in this podcast, then our sexuality isn't necessary for human flourishing. Therefore, it's not a fundamental human right. Like, I don't need to have sex to be whole. I don't need to get married to be whole. I think I do need to be accepted and loved in my sexual orientation and my identity. I do think that as an element of human rights, you know, not to be discriminated against, not to not be given a job. Like, I mean, the Pope said recently, if you're gay, don't become a priest. And I was like, oh, please, you know. Mm and then like oh we love you all it's like what like this mixed messaging and the uh, factional politics behind it is just a nightmare but (laughs) um it's not how i would run the church and i don't want to speak against the pope but like you know necessarily but as a gay man i hear that and it infuriates me because the pope wants the like nice happy fluffy feelings of everyone feeling great and we love the gay community and then don't be a priest if you're gay like well what if you're celibate and what if you're committed and like wouldn't you create the infrastructure in your church to deal with that you know um and make that a path of flourishing for people to live according to the traditional and historic perspective anyway long long diatribe <laughs> later but yeah i think what you're saying is totally on point and um there really is a need for a new way and uh, and I'm just hoping my book can be a tiny little pebble in that slingshot towards a Goliath, you know. Mm, <laughs> um, wow. and, and I think it has become a Goliath, but you know, God, God knows what He's doing, and um, it's sometimes hard to see that when you see this Goliath of hatred and prejudice towards each other, gay and Christian. Yeah. But I think yeah. there will be a response from God, and He will tear down that wall, and actually. When I first became a Christian, this girl prophesied over me in a park that I would be like a golden chisel put into the wall of like this hatred or this like thing. And I saw like Christians throwing weapons at it and gay people throwing weapons at it and the wall just getting bigger and bigger, like more and more divided. And then just like I was this tiny little like almost nothing (laughs) and, you know, just inserted in this wall and it just started to crack. You know, and I think God's doing that with lots more people than just me. I'm one of many more that are about to come of children of God that he will bring forth, that will do the work of breaking this wall down. And, you know, so I, I just trust God. I think we need to trust God hmm. <laughs> with those big and scary things like hmm. the, the vision and the woke um, cancel culture that we're in. But yeah, it is really hard. And I don't have all the solutions, but all I know is we don't have a choice but to go deeper. And I praise God for him pushing us deeper. Mm. Yeah. Wow, that's really beautiful. And what I love about your story as well, even just the way you talk now, there's, there's a real synthesis or partnership between word and spirit in your life there's a yeah you know there's a deep concern with what the holy spirit is saying to you on a subjective personal level but as a as an academic and intellectual clearly um you're very concerned with truth and scripture and god's word and do you think that's a fundamental part of what the church needs to mature on this issue is that we can't just say the bible says without the the holy spirit inspired um grace that comes from that and and also responding to people in the moment what would you say on that issue? Absolutely. I, I mean, 
there's a lot of people who've talked about, I think even Kathy Keller or I'm not sure exactly who it was. Sorry. It's a bit fuzzy in my memory. I think it might've been her, but saying, I think the next revival will come through gay people who are celibate, like who believe the scriptures. And I think the reason someone might say that is not because gay people are special and that like too much of like identitarian politics, well, we are special, but you know what I mean? It's like, not like straight people aren't involved, but it's because we're forced to go deeper into the word and spirit, you know? And so our almost stubborn refrain, like we are not going to compromise the word of the spirit mm. um, is going to be powerful. And I think that's powerful in every person's life, but it's almost like that conundrum of being gay and Christian forces you deeper mm. into that reality of word and spirit. I think I found it quite sad when I see very, very hyper scripture or very hyper Holy spirit. And it seems like the hyper scripture people become dry and condemnation based. And just, I just look at them and I go, where's the life of God. (laughs) And then the charismatic, well, like, (laughs) Oh yeah. Be married. It's fine. Like we're moving forward. I'm just like, no, Mm. no, that's not from God. Both of those Mm. like that. And, you know, in my debate with Brandon Robertson, he said, you know, he's a gay pastor. He said, you know, the Holy Spirit showing us new things that don't have anything to do with this oppressive tradition of scripture. And that's where yeah. we're going. If we follow that hyper Holy Spirit, not that I'm saying you can't have intense experiences in the Holy Spirit. Like, of course you can. And that's awesome. And I have had so many and they're so important and they change you. But if it's without scripture, it's, there's no way of testing the spirits. <laughs> there just isn't, you know, everything falls into subjectivism, you know? So it has to be word and spirit. There's no other way to know you're on sure ground with Jesus. Yeah. And it's interesting. It's funny what you said about, you know, going deeper because your experience as a, as a gay man, I think what I experienced and have noticed in friends who've, who've sacrificed a lot for the gospel. say so they've left their country and moved to the Middle East. There's a, a partnership with the Holy Spirit that I, I don't know and I don't have because I've not experienced the same level of sacrifice. So I think, as you're, you know, you're saying, it's not a question of God loves gay people more than straight people. It's actually people who have to count the costs and are aware of some of the sacrifice and suffering involved in the Christian life do seem to have a, a, a much richer understanding of Jesus and a closer intimacy with him, which I think is what you're, you're alluding to there. Um, well, David, just a couple of things. I'd love to. Um, one of the criticisms that I think I've heard from friends in the church is it's okay for you because you're a philosopher and you think deeply about these sorts of things. But the average street level gay person who just wants a relationship with someone, they're living in a world of slogans uh, and soundbite, you know, love is love. And that resonates deeply with them. And they think, wow, I'm, I, I can go with that. And and so I, I agree with everything you're saying. But it, it does seem to be that you're in a very privileged position intellectually because you're someone who thinks deeply about these things and has been privileged to the education that he has. Um, and yet on a society-wide level, the majority of people aren't engaging with this at that level of thought. Um so that, I mean, not just for gay people, but for straight people in the church as well. So what would you say to help people think through how does this work for someone who's not a philosopher? Um, and to, how can what, what would you say to them? Here's the question, I guess, after all of those thoughts. Here's the question. Um, what would you say in a world that is obsessed with sound bites that would help make God's vision of sex and human flourishing beautiful 
and desirable and good rather than just seem like it's it's against something that our culture has done a lot of hard work to make look presentable and desirable and attractive with all of their campaigns. A- any response to any of that? Anything that has to oversell itself and defend itself so much and disband or not allow any other voice is a sign that there isn't truth there. It's always a sign. And something is being occluded, something is being removed from sight. You know, when you hear someone to speak confidently and not in a shrill way and they've deeply considered things, there's no need to be defensive. You know, that it will stand and it will make sense. And I think the thing is we're always, we have all sorts of temptations and one of them is the superficiality of our society and its answers to really tough, deep questions and just wanting to be impatient with those questions and just get the answer and move on. But that's not what life's like. And there's always going to be those superficial, you know, rainbow flag or conservative party tea, you know, let's all have lots of money in houses and not do anything with it while everyone else suffers. Like, I'm sorry, like, that's just the easy, that's just, that's not the way of Jesus. And people may leave the path and the path is narrow we don't have to advertise it. It is more attractive <laughs> because it's not those fake ways of living. It's not those superficial. And so when God's drawing someone, they'll want to come in. You know, it will be beautiful to them. And I think for me, that's one of the reasons I am in it is because it's beautiful, not because it's intellectually coherent. Most people in academia believe completely heretical things that are just ridiculous when it comes to Orthodox Christianity. <laughs> I mean, academia, the thing I think academia has given me is what we call epistemic humility. Like, I don't know everything, you know, and actually I know less than I did than when I went in (laughs) to academia, you know. I I think that's the real gift of it to me and not, it actually often doesn't help you clarify everything. Yeah, I get what people are saying. You've had the privilege to reflect and take time back and say, you know, you know, but actually, we all need to do this. It's something we all need to do, not just academics. And I think that's one of the really sad things about the division between like academia and society. Like, to some, on some level, we need that division. You know, people can't go as deeply, and I get that, and I, I take that point. But I still could have come to this position without that, and Jesus could have led me. I think it's just a deeper process of discipleship. That's what it requires. And in terms of its beauty or its attractiveness, I think I'd just say it's Jesus. Like that's the beauty and attractiveness is, and really Jesus is a pretty ugly figure. If you sign up to our society, like those superficial things I was talking about, those images that we kind of worship because he didn't have a house. He didn't have much wealth. He, you know, had nowhere to lay his head. He just, like, healed all these sick people and ran off, and he had some friends. But, like, <laughs> like it's not, a, like, honestly, I don't, on the surface as a human in this current culture, find Jesus' life that attractive. Um, unless I'm given the spirit to see, like, oh my gosh, this guy loved people the most deeply you've ever seen. He lived an authentic life. There was no evil way in him. Like, you know, so in terms of like 
oh, I want to flourish and be a human, I'm not going to look at Jesus as a life of human flourishing. And so this is the thing is I think we have two definitions of human flourishing competing against each other. And what we as the church need to do is just unwrap the present of Jesus so people can see that he is the way to true human flourishing and that the way of the cross is actually the way to resurrection. The way of like trying to flourish by yourself is actually death. You know, and that's kind of like the Solomon revelation. Well, everything's done under the sun. Go have a partner with a gay. Like I want to say to gay people, you want to go get married? Great. You have your like, you know, domestic life and everything. Like all these heterosexual people, go ahead. You'll see it's empty. Like that's not going to fulfill you. Like, like this other version of human flourishing is the way. And I'm not necessarily there aren't goods in those other experiences that aren't compatible with living the Jesus way, but ultimately it's a cross. It's not, it doesn't, it's an exclusion from good <laughs> of some kind to actually witness to the greater good and receive the greater good. And that's the cross in, in, in it is actually more beautiful once you see it, but it, yeah, you can't make someone see that. It's something that I think the Holy spirit does and shows us. And once we see it, we see this greater way of flourishing, you know? Mm-hmm. So for me, it's like, I want to say, just present that as it is in the gospel and people will find it beautiful. And the Holy spirit will do the work um, to reorient people to live in that way. Um, And I I love what you said about if you have to oversell something or if you're defensive about it, it's an indication that it's either not true or you don't understand it yet because you're absolutely right. I think it's just sharing my own faith. I become less anxious when I just lean into it and believe it more. Like I, I wrestle with the doubts and the concerns I have personally, privately, but I think there is a, there is an anxiety and an anxiousness in the church when it comes to feeling the need to sell the gospel and compete with the advertising slogans and then sell the Christian lifestyle and sell the best life of following Jesus. And I, I mean, you've said it, I talked to Andrew Bunt um, in our conversation on trans and he said very similar, like, I'm, I'm not saying this will make you the happiest because actually following Christ is a path of suffering. But actually what you've pointed out, the Christian life is a cruciform life. You die in anticipation of resurrection and uh, Christians need to perhaps embrace the fact that we believe life is a, ultimately a comedy. It's shaped like a smile and uh, you go down and then you come up rather than a frown. You have your best life now and then it all ends in death. And so therefore max pleasure before you die. Yes. Um, David, I yes. mean, we're so good. There's so I, I want to ask you a question that um, I may cut from the tape because this is just a personal question I've I've thought about. <laughs> okay. What do you think the Christian? How do you think Christians and the church ought to feel and ought to have responded about with with the redefinition of marriage? Uh, and the the same sex passing of same sex marriage was the church right to lament it? Should the church have fought it? harder should we have recognized let the world judge the world we just need to let this one go it's okay should we as christians insist on um not even calling it marriage what would be some of your reflections on how the church and christians are supposed to even feel about the state's definition of marriage so this is a really good book um that was written by someone called augustine (laughs) (laughs) i i have uh, augustine tattooed on my arm so i'm a big fan yeah I think, like, we need to read this stuff. So that's the city of God you're holding up. Yeah, okay. Because this is the same question that Christians have always had. Like, we have so many resources at our hands. 
we don't do anything with them. And as evangelicals, we're particularly guilty of this. We don't read Christian history. We don't look at, at the story of our brothers and sisters in similar states in of time and history mm. and how they dealt with the same question. Because there were things being passed in law that didn't accord with the gospel. And so, like, how do you live, you know, in the city of earth as the city of God? And that question is just, like, one that you just have to answer as a Christian. You have to just spend some time investing in. And Augustine's, like, the place to start because he hatched a very profound vision from the roots of Scripture and what Paul said and what Jesus said and the New Testament said and the Old Testament said and gave us, like, a whole way of doing this. And so he says, you know, there are times where we can agree on goods with the city of earth and we can politically work together with the city of earth and there's times where the city of earth are going to disagree with us and we're going to clash. And and almost, like, some Christians are called to the clash and some Christians are called to the, like, joining and you know and i think god has variously designed it that there are people who are called to differ with the city of earth and say there's a different way we as christians want to go but even if there's a different way we're called to go we still have to be here with the city of earth non-christians people who don't want to live with jesus and we have to relate to them within the government you know and then other christians who we would think are compromised are not living in the fullness and are actually gone with the city of earth and of compromising their pilgrimage to god and we have to learn to relate to them too within the polity of the church you know and so i think for me it's a complicated question i think but that god through the body of christ through the church in our separate vocations you know, will answer that and work it out if we just do it with him. And and I think there are people called into politics in different spaces. And I think what really disappointed me was like Tim Farron's response of just not really having given this question enough consideration as a politician mm. and this kind of crisis in him. As much as I love him as a brother and bless him and it's such a difficult thing he went through, I just think like, there are ways to have having responded to that if you just had done a little bit more mm. depth of research and just not having this crisis of like, do I think gay sex is a sin? I mean, <laughs> like, that's a, like, that, you know, I would say something like, well, for me as a Christian, I have a different sexual ethic to other people and that's okay. And I can still lead a party, you know, and, and if I can't, then there, where is liberal democracy? <laughs> As a liberal democrat you know uh, it's gone you know so you can't even be a liberal democratic party if you don't have that <laughs> um if you don't have people with different opinions uh, respecting each other oh. so for me with the question of gay marriage it was very interesting in australia because i was asked so in australia it wasn't just passed through parliament through like a kind of consensus in a political party it was passed basically first through a plebiscite where they asked everyone, you know, what's your view on marriage? What do you think marriage is? And so when I was asked that question as a Christian, I had to say, well, I'm part of this other trajectory as a pilgrim. I'm not going with the city. (laughs) So I think marriage is this. And um, before God in my conscience had to say what I really thought marriage was. And I don't think it's between two men or two women simple so i voted no (laughs) and however unpopular that is or if i go through persecution because of it well so be it i'm not going that way Mm. um 
Now, if my government decided that they wanted to go a different way and there was a consensus that actually gay marriage is this, then in some sense as a Christian, my role is to accept that, um, but still to say, but I'm going in a different way as the church. And I think the thing that's really difficult for me is the Church of England, because if they compromise on this, what they are opening up is a an area of destroying the identity of the church as a different community that is on the way to a different city, a different existence. Mm. And they're destroying that witness because, yeah. And so that, that for me is why the church has to be a place where gay marriage isn't permitted. And we're already seeing the Episcopalian church is going to be completely empty by 2050 because there is no existence of distinction you're living as the city of earth. You've lost being the city of God and it's over mm. as soon as you do that. And that's why gay marriage is so contentious because it has that power, mm. you know, and it kills the, it's killing the, the church is dying. <laughs> it's losing its way in that pilgrimage journey. So that's how I'm understanding it. It's helped me. I think Augustine, this reading him has really helped me navigate the difficulties and also being able to then reach across the city of earth and say, we understand why you love marriage and we don't want to keep it like from you, like, and respecting gay couples and gay married couples and stuff like that's important too. So it's the, the crossover, the, the double-edged sword of Augustine's political theology that I think is what we need to develop as a church of both making peace with the city of earth, but being completely distinct from it. Um, yeah. You know, is the tension we have to live in as Christians. Can you see a scenario where um, a gay celibate Christian enters into a civil partnership with another gay celibate Christian to protect some of the, just the the legal um, fraternal intimacy that they might have as two brothers or as two sisters, uh, which I I guess is part of the church's next creative response of how do we create flourishing communities for gay celibate Christians that don't involve, don't need to require sexual intimacy. I think my problem with celibate gay partnerships is, and I've cupped a bit of flack for this, but I just don't think they're pastorally very viable in a separate unit. Like, I don't think that can function exactly like a heterosexual family or a gay union because you need almost... If I was in a spiritual friendship with someone, I would need a broader community to experience that friendship within... Because it like you would just want to go, I think, naturally into like a sexually active gay union. I think it would be like a form of existential torture. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I'm honest, like you're with someone you find really deeply attractive, or even if it's not even physical, like it could just be like, and that's going to inspire responses that are just really difficult mm. to just yeah. So I think I could have like a covenant partner, a friendship with another gay man within a context of broader community. I think that's possible. It's difficult, but I think it's definitely possible. But to form a unit as a celibate gay union doesn't, I don't think that would work for me. There might be other people who disagree and I'm not going to like die on a crossover it, but I just, I don't personally feel comfortable with it. Mm. I think it would be too hard for me. Um, And I can't imagine I'm that different to everyone else. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so it's not that 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 for me is more. I think we need to return to spiritual communities living together in houses and work that out as the church. Um, Mm. I think the Church of England's trying its best on that. 
um, to, to respect that. So I really hope that legacy is built up and not just the easy, well, it's all fine and we can move on and now gay marriage isn't the church. I really, I just really hope that doesn't happen because it's going to be really hard. But Wow, it's really helpful. And I love that you have City of God on your desk in front of you as though it's just casual bedtime reading or whatever. <laughs> it's pretty pretty slow going for the first like eight books and then it it starts persevere yeah. through the first eight books <laughs> yeah. i understand why people haven't read it but um yeah it's it's just really helping me because that's what i'm doing for my thesis is kind of thinking through yeah augustine. and of course augustine wrote at the time that the, the roman empire was collapsing and many people are, are prophesying the collapse of western civilization um as we know it and so as christians we do find ourselves at an intersection between the end of a previous era for better, for worse, for, you know, and the pandemic's probably exacerbating that and speeding that effect up more. We're at the end of an era at those crossroads and needing to examine ourselves and ask these questions of Christian faithfulness in a changing culture. Um, David, it's been such a privilege to be able to talk to you and uh, I've just fired questions after questions. You must be exhausted. I'll let you go and lie down. <laughs> no, 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 it's good. It's stimu- I find it stimulating and edifying. So thank you so much. And Jazz, I'd love to... Yeah, let's try to get, you know, a coffee or something. I've got so much I can learn from you. I'd love that. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation. I know I certainly did. Well, friends, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm looking forward to bringing you a conversation with Henk and Une Kirsten as we discuss the Christian life and parenting, remaining faithful over many years and trusting in the purposes of God in our day. About a year and a half ago now, we attended a New Ground Leadership Conference that they both spoke at. It was such a moving and beautiful session. I thought it would be fantastic to get them onto the podcast to try to relive some of the wonderful things that they shared in that session. Here's a clip from that podcast to whet your appetite. In this time and also in the past, uh, not you know, life can be hard, hey, and life can be different than you think it should go. But actually, to um, to keep your heart soft is really trusting God, but also uh, being in contact with Jesus and just sharing your heart and sharing your frustration. Until next time, I hope you stay well and keep pursuing Jesus with everything you've got. God bless you and see you soon.